In college, I had a big crush on a girl and I wanted to make a really great impression. And so I knew that her birthday was coming up and I thought for a long time about what I could do to make a good impression on her. And so I decided to mail her an ice cream cone. And that relationship did not work out. So I was thinking about some of my greatest fail stories, and so many of them are truly wardrobe malfunctions. I worked at a commercial real estate investment firm. It was very fancy, had to wear a suit every day. One morning I get there about seven o'clock in the morning, stop in the restroom, make my way through the sales area to my desk, and my coworker starts just stumbling over her words. Lisa, huh, you're caught, you're caught. I'm like, what are you talking about? And my skirt, was tucked into my pantyhose and I had walked through the entirety of the office just like that. So I'm very fancy. I once had a first date scheduled in downtown Mountain View at 3 p.m. I showed up and she didn't. She texted me back a month later saying, hey, sorry I missed our date, I overslept. <laughs> oh, I think that's just, that's the joke. Like, she overslept a date. Well, then why'd she text me back a month later? She felt bad, it was eating out her conscience. Poor guy, still at the coffee shop. A month later. That last guy is Kyle, he's still looking for a date. Uh, what? Sorry, did I say something bad? Uh, we're in this series appropriately called Made Perfect in Weakness, and it's from a very statement in the Bible where God says, my strength is made perfect in weakness. We all have lots of weakness. I'm so glad you are here for this message. Um, first of all, I want to thank Pastor Herman Hamilton. He was with us last week, and we got to receive his ministry, and that was a great blessing. I got to be at New Beginnings Community Church, which is where Pastor Hamilton normally preaches, and that was just a sheer joy. Uh, an organization called Transforming the Bay with Christ tells us there are 3,398 local churches in the Bay Area. And we get to be one of those. We get to pray for, partner, cheer on uh, thousands of other churches. And we're so glad to be able to do that. Uh, second, I want to note that several people have asked me, uh, did our church pray for any team to win the NBA title that recently got resolved? And I just want to make it clear, our allegiance is not based on geography. Our commitment is to the authority of the Bible and the identity of our God. And the Bible says in Exodus chapter 15, the Lord is a warrior. <laughs> I think that ought to make it real clear where the Bible stands. It's in the book. Uh, in case that's not clear to anybody, it also says, Thou shalt not have a cavalier spirit before thy God. Yeah. Or maybe not. Uh, you can just reflect on that when you can't trust everything that you hear up here. But all of that brings me to this, what I want to talk about today. If you've ever been part of a family, been on a long trip, there is a question that you will have heard. It gets asked by the children in a family on a long journey. It gets asked soon. It gets asked often. It gets asked with a whining, obnoxious intensity that is designed to drive the parents crazy. And that question is, are we there yet? We suffer from what in our day, in a wonderful phrase, is sometimes called destination impatience. Are we there yet? Foolish parents, rookie parents, new parents will sometimes try to take care of this by, by 
giving false assurance. Yeah, almost there. Just a little while longer. Just almost. And I think that's a mistake. I would say to our kids, no, we're not almost there. We're nowhere near almost there. This is going to go on and on and on. So stop your whining or we'll never get there. We'll spend the rest of our lives driving each other crazy in this car. That's why our children are still in therapy. Uh, but that question, are we there yet, is, is part of the human condition. And it's also part of the spiritual life of people and the experience of God's people. It goes way back in the Bible. In fact, what I want to do in this message is kind of tell you how that question got started in the Bible. Israel, a little group of people that would become the children of God, lived in Egypt. They were an oppressed people. We know oppression in our day. They were slaves because of their ethnicity. And God came to this man Moses, and God said, I have seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering, so I have come down to rescue them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land flowing with milk and honey. Now, there's all kinds of very powerful ideas packed into this little dense passage. The idea that there is a God and creator of all things and that uh, he actually sees human misery and he hears human pleas for help and he is concerned about human flourishing and he is active that he will come down. Those are all ideas expressed in a narrative form that are very powerful. And so then he says, I'm going to lead you on a journey. And and it sounds to them like a real simple journey, just two parts. You're going to lead them up out of Egypt and then bring them up into the promised land flowing with milk and honey. Shouldn't take long. Uh, if you are familiar with that part of the world, once they leave Egypt, it's a pretty short trek across the Sinai Peninsula. That's what they have to cross to get to the promised land. It would take them by direct route for six weeks. And there's a map that shows you the direct route. It was called the Via Maris, the Way of the Sea. It was a well-known road in the ancient world. But they don't take that road. That's what everybody would expect. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was nearer. For, God thought, if the people face war, they may change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people by the roundabout way of the wilderness or desert toward the Red Sea. This is very strange. This is another map that you might picture, a very circuitous route, the roundabout way. Now, you've got to imagine how disorienting this is going to be to the people. God has delivered them from their oppression, so they know that this is something beyond just human uh, expertise or strength at work. And they have to cross a peninsula, and there's a pillar in front of them. The text says it's a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. Uh, this is like... Uh, the ultimate navigation system. Okay, they're going to be led by God. And the pillar starts to move, but immediately they notice it's going the wrong way. The promised land is northeast and the pillar is heading south. The pillar is directionally challenged. And the great question is, will people follow God when they don't understand God? Will they follow him when following does not get them what it is that they think they want? Will they persist? Will they stay faithful on the roundabout way of God? And I raise this issue because all of us know about the roundabout way where we find ourselves where we do not want to be. 
It's, it's part of the human condition. And, and one of God's most irritating qualities for a lot of us is he just seems not to be in a hurry like we are. And this is not a minor detour. In fact, Israel would spend 40 years on this roundabout way. Get, should have been four or six weeks. 40 years. 40 is a significant number. If you know much about the Bible, you may have noticed it's a number that crops up a lot. Uh, Isaac and Esau both got married when they were 40 years of age. 40 days marked the time of the flood. 40 days marked the time that Moses was up on Mount Sinai getting the Ten Commandments. 40 days was the period in between when Jesus was resurrected on Easter and he ascended back to heaven. King David reigned 40 years. King Solomon, we're told, reigned 40 years. 40 is often used in the Bible, not in a literal way, but as kind of a round number to refer to a, a lengthy or significant uh, period of time. So, biblically speaking, I'm more or less 40 years old. Um, 40 is especially in the Bible associated with the desert. When Moses killed a man, he runs into the Midian desert and he lives there for 40 years. When Elijah is terrified by Queen Jezebel and is running for his life, he runs into the wilderness and he's there for 40 days. Maybe most famously, Jesus, after he had been baptized, and you would think now, short path to his ministry in the throne of glory. Instead, he is driven. Mark's gospel uses a very intense verb as if Jesus did not want to go. He is driven by the Spirit into the desert, and he's there for 40 days being alone, days of hunger and temptation. The desert gang is the place you don't want to be, you don't want to go. It is the place that is not flowing with milk and honey and great jobs and wonderful dates. It is a dry and barren place. Worse, you don't know how long you're going to be there. How long is 40? Are we there yet? And I say this because sometimes people kind of evade, sometimes even churches evade the reality of the roundabout way. But it will come when your heart aches with hurt or loss and you don't know why, when you long for a good thing and maybe you have faith and it seems like God could give you that good thing if he wanted to, but he doesn't. Sometimes the desert is triggered by some event and we all know about this. There's a child that you love and they run away, figuratively or literally, and you don't know if I will ever get this child back again. Or there's a financial disaster, and some of you are experiencing that, or you lose your job, or you get a report from the doctor, and all of a sudden your world has changed, and it'll never be the same. Or you have a dream, and you spend years looking forward to when that dream is going to come true, and then one day you realize, not only has it not come true, it's not going to come true, and it dies, and you kind of die with it. Sometimes the desert comes for no discernible reason at all. We have been reading this last week about a couple of people of significant influence in our world and, and um, often a lot of life and a lot of joy and seeing again the power and the pain of depression in this internal desert because everybody has a story that very often we cannot see on the outside. Everybody does. Everybody here does. I do and so do you. Everybody knows about the desert. And I want to tell you, when it comes, because it will, it does not mean that God has forgotten about you. It does not mean that there is no God or that you have been abandoned. 
God is often at work in the roundabout way of the desert in ways that I don't see, don't understand. God's way is rarely the quickest, rarely the easiest. But the only alternative to it is the way of despair, is the way of death. So I want to talk this weekend in this series about how God's strength is made perfect in weakness, about the roundabout way, about what it's possible to learn in the desert. Because oddly enough, doesn't explain everything there is to know about the desert, but oddly, when people look back on their lives, often it's the desert times and the roundabout way where they were most shaped. So some lessons in the desert. One of them is this. The desert is the place where we learn patience. And of course, all of us would like to have patience, but none of us want to go through the pain of having to learn it. And every day, the Israelites would wake up, and there'd be this pillar, and they'd have to ask, will I follow today? If it just sits there, will I just sit there? Are we there yet? Maybe for you, being single is the roundabout way. Maybe for you, it's marriage. Maybe your marriage has become a desert experience. You had hopes and dreams, and, and, and they have not come true. Will you patiently be obedient to God? Will you love your spouse if you have a spouse a day at a time, even when it's not easy? Old story, there's an elderly couple laying in bed, and the wife says to her husband, you know, when we were young, you used to hold my hand. And he grumbles a little bit, but he reaches over and grabs her hand. And a few minutes later, she says, you know, when we were young, you used to hold me when we laid in bed. And he grumbles a little bit more because it takes a little more effort now, but he rolls over and puts his arms around her and holds her. And a couple of minutes later, she says to him, you know, when we were young, you used to nibble on my ear. And he throws the covers back and gets out of bed. And she says, what are you doing? And he says, going to get my teeth. Because it's one thing to nibble on the ear when you're young and you're in love and that ear is lovely and the air is filled with the scent of OD something or other. Nibbling is easy. It's another thing to nibble when that ear doesn't hear so well anymore and it contains a hearing device and the ear is filled with the scent of Bengay and you have to go get your teeth first. The desert is this place where we all will go. Aging will do it if nothing else does. Where I don't want to be where I don't want to go, but where I can learn to be as patient with other people, maybe even as patient with my own life, as God, my Heavenly Father, is patient with me. Wonderful things can happen in this terrible place called the desert. Another lesson, uh, the desert is often the place where God makes you strong. My strength is made perfect in weakness. It's the odd paradox of the kingdom of God. None of us want to be thought of as weak. It's very interesting in this story. You know, why would God lead his people on the roundabout way? The text actually tells us, for God thought, because if people face war, challenge, difficulty, the Philistines, they may change their minds and return to Egypt, and their story will be over before it ever actually begins. The direct route, in other words, like 101 back then, via Maris, would take them past people, the Philistines, who were hostile. And God was perfectly capable of delivering them any number of ways, but they did not believe that yet. They were too frightened. 
And so God would lead them on the roundabout way so that day by day, week by week, year by year, he would develop in their qualities of courage and faith and persistence that were not present in them yet. In other words, in other words, God is not nearly as concerned with where his people are going as who they will be when they get there. For 400 years, see, they had been slaves. And all of that stuff was inside them still. It's an old observation. I don't know who first made it. It took one night to get Israel out of Egypt. It took 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel for them to view themselves as people loved and cared for by God. It's not so hard to trust in the land of milk and honey. When everything is working out okay, when my prayers are getting answered, and my problems go away, and the kids' teeth are straight, and your bank account is up, and your weight is down, and your hair looks great, and the dog is happy to see you, faith is not so hard then. And often, when somebody first becomes a Christian, God will give you, you may have experienced this, a kind of gift of great spiritual desire, of great spiritual motivation. And you find yourself hungry to read the Bible, and you can't wait to worship, and and in prayer, it feels like God is so close, and old temptations don't even look good to you anymore. And then, over time, something happens, and, and what was once easy and enjoyable in your spiritual life becomes difficult. And you pray, you try to pour your heart towards God, but it feels like those prayers don't get past the ceiling. And the Bible now kind of looks like an odd or confusing or even troubling book to you. And temptations begin to look really appealing to you. And, and you feel so dry. And it's not just that you're in the desert. It's like the desert is in you. And maybe it's because you have been just running after a sin, and what you need to do is confess that and stop, maybe. But, but sometimes this descends on people for no discernible reason. And folks that write about spiritual life have written about this. There was a man, St. John of the Cross, and he talked about what he called the dark night of the soul. And God actually can be at work in this. I'll give you a little parable about this. My first bike was a red English racer, and I wanted to learn to ride that bike more than anything. Uh, it came with training wheels, and one day my dad took the training wheels off, and I wasn't ready to ride solo, so my dad would run behind me with one hand on the bike. And I thought I was doing great. And then my dad did a strange thing. He let go of the bike, and I began to fall. Every time I'd get up on it, I would fall again, and I didn't like this. And I asked my dad, why did you let go? And my dad said, I let go because it's part of what you have to go through if you're going to learn. I let go because if I don't, you will never know the joy of riding. And because you're 25 years old now, <laughs> sooner or later that day comes when like, it's time for somebody to let go. Uh, a guy named C.S. Lewis wrote a wonderful book called The Screwtape Letters. And then he describes how part of the human condition is just how we are made as embodied creatures is we have peaks times of great energy and joy, and we have troughs, times when we feel quite low. This is true physically, this is true emotionally, and this is true spiritually. We wish it were not so. We wish it was just a straight, you know, up and to the right line, but life does not work that way. And he said, this is how God works in us in times of spiritual dryness. God leaves the creature to stand up on its own legs to carry out from the will alone duties which have lost all relish. It is during such trough periods, much more than during peak periods, that it is growing into the sort of creature that he wants it to be. My strength is made perfect in weakness. So don't think, if you're on the roundabout way, 
that God has forgotten all about you or that God doesn't care. Sometimes it's in those moments. Maybe you've been looking for a relationship and it just hasn't been coming or, or, or you're tempted to get into a relationship that you know would be dishonoring to God. And then those times when obedience simply comes from the will to say, God, even no matter how long the roundabout way goes, I will follow you, I will trust you, I will obey you, I will stay on that way. If it means 40 years, I will endure 40 years. If it's the rest of my life, God, I will follow you and not compromise my integrity or my character. Desert's a place where that happens in real deep ways. And God grows real strong people in the desert in those trough moments. Another lesson, the desert is where I come face to face with my temptation and sin. And in the Bible, this very often happens in the desert, maybe most famously, when Jesus goes into the desert and the evil one, Satan, tempts him three times uh, with great power. And then the question is, will I be willing to look at the truth about myself and my temptations and my shadow side? There was a wonderful writer, Brendan Manning, and he wrote a book called The Ragamuffin Gospel about the power of coming out of hiding. He writes about a group in an alcohol rehab center led by a very colorful therapist named Sean Murphy O'Connor, very Irish therapist. And in the hot seat in this group is a guy named Max, kind of a nominal Christian, quite confident, owned his own business, quite wealthy guy. Uh, he refused to acknowledge the truth about his problem with alcohol. And Sean Murphy O'Connor finally asked him, how long have you been drinking like a pig? Max protested this was unfair. It took relentless cross-examination, Manning writes, and phone calls to bars he frequented before he acknowledged he kept two cases of vodka in the garage along with a case of gin, some bourbon and scotch, also a bottle of vodka in his nightstand, a bottle of gin in a suitcase when he traveled, three more at his office to entertain clients. Max said, I may have underemphasized the problem. You're a liar, Sean Murphy O'Connor said. No need to get vindictive, Max said. Remember the image in John's gospel about the speck in your brother's eye and the two-by-four in your own, and the other one in Matthew about the pot calling the kettle black. Now, it, that pot calling the kettle black deal is not actually in the Bible. Max doesn't quite know the Bible as well as he thought he did. Sean asked him, you ever been unkind to your children? Max thought he might have been last Christmas, but couldn't remember details. Sean called his wife, put her on speakerphone. Hello, ma'am. I'm calling in the middle of a group therapy session. Your husband has just told us he was unkind to your daughter last Christmas Eve. Can you give us the details, please? She could. Last Christmas Eve, on the way home from buying his daughter Debbie some lovely shoes, Max stopped at a tavern, locked little Debbie in the trunk to keep her warm in the 12-degree weather, and drank starting at 3 in the afternoon. When he came out of the bar, he was drunk. It was midnight. The engine had stopped. Debbie was badly frostbitten on both ears and on her fingers. Her thumb and her forefinger were amputated. She would be deaf the rest of her life. Manning wrote that when his wife told that story, Max collapsed like a man having a coronary and dropped to his knees and sobbed hysterically. Not me, not me. 
For Max, Manning writes, there were only three choices, eventual insanity, premature death, or the truth, confession and repentance and pain and grace and sobriety, strength made perfect in weakness. And he chose sobriety. But it was a long roundabout way with brutal honesty in a community of people that would speak truth into his life and love him as sisters and brothers who walked the roundabout way together. I don't know what the desert looks like for you when you come to the truth about what is inside you. I know for every human being, that's an awful moment. Those are awful moments. I know that. And the desert is the place where um, the ordinary gratifications of my life, you know, the image that I try to construct and my reputation and my achievements and the people that I can impress and the stuff that I can try to make, the, the desert is the place where those are no longer available to distract me. And now I have to choose, will I face the truth about me or will I not? And I can hide or I can come out of hiding and I can heal. This is me. This is me. But I can't do both. And I hope you don't hide. I know the desert can be a painful place. I know. I know. I hope you don't hide. I hope you get real with God and yourself and another person. And that's why we exist as a church. We're just, we're just, we're the remedial group of followers of Jesus on the roundabout way. Are we there yet? Last lesson. And this is kind of a beautiful one. I had not thought about for a long time in this story. The desert is the place where you can learn to love God just because he's God, because he's so good, and not because of the milk and honey that he gives you. When our children were small, we used to go sometimes to a restaurant called the Spaghetti Factory, and there was a machine there filled with toys and stuffed animals. Some of you may have seen a machine like this. You would put in 50 cents and move a crane around and push a button to drop the jaws of the crane. And if they dropped exactly right and closed exactly right, you would get this great, fabulous, expensive toy. Our child loved that machine, would talk sweetly to that machine, would give that machine all the money that child had. Anybody want to guess how many toys that child got from that machine? Never got a single toy. And over time, that child no longer loved that machine, no longer spoke sweetly to that machine, spoke in other words with that machine that then we had to deal with a little bit later on. <laughs> See, desert times are those times when you get nothing that you want, not the promotion, not the house, not the relationship, not even health. And you keep putting in 50 cents. It's not coming back. And then I find out, do I love God for God? Will I love this life that he gives me, this world that he created? Or, or do, do I love him only when I get the good stuff? Do I love life? Do I love other people only when I get the good stuff? See, the desert was intended by God 
not to be a place of punishment. It was intended to be the place where Israel learned to live just simply in God's love like a child. In the desert, they had no great cities to build. They had no great companies they had to start. They had no difficult battles that they had to win. Just God and them. And the plan was, he would just feed them every morning manna, just, just a gift. And he would just guide them every day, this pillar going before them, just a gift. And he would just guard and protect them every night, just a gift. See, there was infinitely more at stake in this story than what they knew. This was not about relocation. This was not about just being slaves. This was not about the land, primarily. There's a lot of confusion about this. Even in our day, there's a lot of confusion about Israel primarily being about just the land. It wasn't even really about the formation of a new nation, because nations come and nations go. It doesn't change our world. There was something deeper going. This was about a new way of being human in the care of God. There's a great scholar, Peter Berger, and he wrote that when Israel left Egypt, it was a break with an entire universe. And this is what he meant. In the ancient world, Egypt and other places, the universe was thought to be kind of a cold, chaotic place that was ruled by capricious gods, and human beings would go through rituals or offer sacrifices or give gifts to try to be spared chaos and to get the health or the wealth that they wanted. And it was understood that that was life, what life was about. And now this little group of ex-slaves was invited into an experiment of living in the care of the one true God, the creator of all that is, who in the desert would make a covenant of love with them, who in the desert would form them into a community where every person would experience dignity and care and love, who in the desert would give them the gift of the Ten Commandments, would give them the gift of direction that life could be something noble and morally beautiful and good, who would create in them a community where the primary concern is the goodness and love of the creatures that God made in his own image over which he would be their father. So when you're in the desert, and you will be in the desert, don't you give up. Life is not about milk and honey. It's not about the land. It's not about the job. It's not about the house. It's not about the money. You are on the roundabout way with God. It is in the desert, oddly enough, that we find the only hope worth having. And that is Christian hope. That is the hope of Jesus. I, I don't know why you're going through the desert that you go through. What I do know is this. That the Bible tells us when God came to earth in the form of Jesus, he did not take the shortest route to the throne of power. Didn't take the 101. He went by the roundabout way through the desert. Humbled himself to become obedient, taking on the form of a slave, washing feet. His final walk to his death was from the temple to the cross through this winding road, I've been on this road in Jerusalem of great suffering, of great hostility, carrying a cross on his back with a mob ridiculing him, a walk that came to be known to his followers as the Via Dolorosa, the way of sorrows, the way of suffering. That's our God, the roundabout way. And we die with him through surrender and repentance 
I don't understand all about this, but if you will go with him on the roundabout way, the way of the desert, the way of the cross, the way of surrender, the way of faith, Jesus says, you will surely know one day the triumph of resurrection and glory and hope and life. You will surely know this. Are we there yet? Not yet. One day, not yet. Could be a long time. Probably will. It's okay. Be patient. It's coming. Let's pray. And now, Heavenly Father, I pray particularly for everybody who's here, whose heart aches, who knows sorrow or grief or confusion or disappointment. I pray for everybody who has known or knows right now or is headed for a desert. I pray that we will meet Jesus there. I pray that we will meet Jesus right now at this table when we think about the love that caused him to suffer for us. And we ask this together in Jesus' name. Amen.